Well, I'm not sure about all of you, but my heart is full and ready to burst. So you folks in the front row, <laughs> be ready. Just a great honor and privilege to be here and to see how many folks have been touched over these past years because of the great worth of our Lord Jesus Christ, his lordship and supremacy over the church and all of creation. To see how many pastors are here represented, how many churches represented, to know how many of you have been laboring in prayer for each and every one of us, for our families. Mike has already mentioned the wives and how they have been so strengthened and upheld by your prayers. To know how God has used someone like Jacob to be such a mentor and encourager, not only to you all here at Trinity, not only to all the volunteers and the staff who've been so gracious here this weekend, but how he has been investing in all these other men's lives. And uh, while the world might not understand that, while the critics might not know that, on that great day of judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's what we want. As I begin the topic here for this afternoon, I need to remind you that neutrality is a myth. Neutrality is a myth. There, there is no middle ground when it comes to the lordship and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you are either for me or you are against me. We know there is the kingdom of darkness and there is the kingdom of light. Jesus said there are two paths and there's a, a broad path that leads to destruction and there's that narrow, hard road that leads to life. There's no middle ground. On that great day of judgment before him, he will assemble the nations and there will be sheep and there will be goats. And that his word and his judgment will divide like a sword. And the goats will be thrown into the lake of fire and suffer eternal destruction. And his saints he will welcome into his kingdom where they will enjoy eternal life forever. There is no neutrality. When Jesus speaks and when he gives his commands and when he calls people to come after him and to follow him, you can either build your life upon the rock that is Christ or you can build your life upon the sand and great will be the ruin of those who build their life upon the sand. There's no neutrality. It's Christ or it's antichrist. You are for him or you are against him. And this is not only true for us as individuals, this is true for your labor as a father. As you work in your home, you are either working as a father to love your wife and your children, you are either working for Christ or against Christ. This is true for a pastor who stands behind the pulpit. Either he is going to be a minister of Christ or a minister of the Antichrist. Same is true for the magistrate, for the governor, for the mayor, for the prime minister. He will either be a servant of Christ or a servant of Antichrist. There is no neutrality. 
And my topic here this afternoon is a talk about that civil magistrate and what it means for that civil magistrate to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to wage war against Antichrist. In Bunyan's book of Antichrist and His Ruin, he writes this. He says, The church, therefore, as a church, must use such weapons as are proper to her as such. And the magistrate, as a magistrate, must use such weapons as proper to him as such. Bunyan argues that the church, through the proclamation of the gospel, wages war against Antichrist by attacking his soul. And the magistrate wages war against Antichrist by warring against his body. That one uses weapons that are spiritual and one uses weapons that are carnal or fleshly. Yet Antichrist is to be slain. Bunyan says, kings, I say, must be the men that must down with Antichrist and they shall down with her in God's time. So a father wields great authority and power in his home. A pastor wields great authority and power in his church. And the magistrate wields great authority in the civic realm. So what does it mean for him to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to wage war against Antichrist? That's the question. That's my topic. And I want to give you two premises. The first is this. The chief duty of the magistrate is to secure and preserve peace and public tranquility. Secondly, the magistrate will never do this more successfully than when he is truly God-fearing and religious. That is, according to the example of the most holy kings and princes of the people of the Lord, he promotes the preaching of the truth and sincere faith roots out lies and all superstition together with all impiety and idolatry and defends the church of God. That's my two premises that I want to show to you, both from history, from reason, and from scripture. Now I know when I say these things that it may sound foreign to our ears. Did I just hear you say that the civil magistrate has a duty not only to wage war against Antichrist, but to put down superstitions and idolatries and defend the church of God. I thought we were here because we believed in the separation of church and state. I know when John Knox, when he articulated his theory of resistance, Christian resistance, that as he was involved in a debate his debating partner, representative of the crown, said to him, he says, I think he shall not have many learned men of your opinion. And Knox replied this way. He said, my Lord, the truth ceases not to be the truth, howsoever it be that men either misknow it or yet resist it. And yet I praise my God, I lack not the consent of God's servants in that head. And I contend the same today that what I just articulated to you is historic. There was a consensus among the Reformed and the Puritans on this issue. We have forgotten it. It must be recovered. And I want to show you that from Scripture. But first, let me show you in history. My 
the premise that I share with you is actually from the second Helvetic Confession in 1562, written by Henrik Bullinger. And it was adopted not only by the Reformed Church in Switzerland, but also in Scotland and in Hungary and in France and in Poland. And in full, it said this, the chief duty of the magistrate is to secure and preserve peace and public tranquility. Doubtless, he will never do this more successfully than when he is truly God-fearing and religious. That is to say, when according to the example of the most holy kings and princes of the people of the Lord, he promotes the preaching of the truth and sincere faith, roots out lies and all superstition, together with all impiety and idolatry, and defends the church of God. We certainly teach that the care of religion belongs especially to the holy magistrate. Knox, who pastored the English congregation in Geneva under the, the tutelage and mentorship of John Calvin, the confession of their church from 1566 reads this way. It says, besides this ecclesiastical discipline, I acknowledge to the church a political magistrate who administers justice to every man, defending the good and punishing the evil, to whom we must render honor and obedience in all things which are not contrary to the word of God. And as Moses, Hezekiah, Josiah, and other godly rulers purged the church of God of superstition and idolatry, so the defense of Christ's church against all idolaters and heretics as Papists and Anabaptists and such rascals or Antichrist pertains to the Christian magistrates to root out all doctrines of devils and men such as the mass. You might be thinking, well, that, well, that Knox guy, he was pretty fiery. Maybe he was just a little off. And after time goes on and maybe after, you know, these reformers begin to mature and settle down and Puritanism is is flourishing in England, that when, when these Westminster divines, as we call them, when they assemble to, to make this historic confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, we figure at that time they would have recognized that, well, Knox is a little bit of a zealot. But listen to the Westminster Confession of 1646. It says, the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments, or the powers of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Yet he hath authority and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinance of God duly settled, administered and observed." we recognize is, we look at those reformed confessions, there is a consensus in the reformed church about the role and responsibility of the magistrate to wage war against the body of antichrist. And that means putting down idolatries and superstitions and blasphemies that are not in accordance with the word of God and the lordship of Christ. What we also have to remember is not only was there a consensus among the reformers, but apart from godly kings and princes and magistrates, there would have been no reformation. There would have been no Luther if there was no godly magistrates. There would have been no great revival and great reform if it wasn't for these great Protestant kings and princes in Germany that were used 
to advance the Reformation. Just read about Luther, read about Magdeburg, read about Gustavus Adolphus, king of Sweden. Read about Edward VI. God used the civil magistrate to advance the kingdom of light and to wage war against the kingdom of darkness. Now at this point, there still might be a siren going off in your head because it is what I've just said likely is, is breaking some cardinal truths of, of secularism around us today. And there's, a, there's an inviolable doctrine of separation of church and state, and maybe these sirens are going off in your head because I think, I think you just violated something there. And, and you know how it is when you know, you're in an office and the fire alarm goes off and it's just ringing in your ear and someone's trying to talk to you, but you can't hear a thing that they're saying because the siren is going off? Maybe it's like that in your mind right now. And all these sirens are going off in your head. What about this? And what about that? And what about this? So what I want to do is address some of the, those objections that are just, just hanging before us when I talk about the role of the civil magistrate to wage war against Antichrist, try to deal with some of those objections and, and then turn to the text of Scripture to, to prove what I've just shared with you and where those men also saw it. The first objection to the magistrate, magistrate having anything to do with waging war against Antichrist, to suppressing lies and blasphemies, those kinds of things, superstitions, is a separation of church and state. Is this not a violation of the separation of church and state? Is there not this wall between the church and the state? And is not what you're articulating, the state coming over that wall to meddle in the church? What we must remember is that the separation of the church and state means we believe in a separation of government of church and the government of the state. The state is not your pastor and your pastor is not your prime minister. There's a separation of, of government, of jurisdiction, of responsibilities, but yet we have to recognize that both the state and the church are under the lordship of Christ and that both ought to serve Christ. And there is no neutrality. You can't have a, a church that honors God and then a neutral state. The state will always be religious. The question is not whether the state will be religious. The question is, which religion will the state promote and which other faith will the state wage war against to suppress? And in case you haven't recognized, our state today is very religious. Remember how Paul walked around Athens? It's like you can walk around today and say, wow, men of the secular West, I see that you are very religious. Just look at the initiatives and the laws that our government is passing. It's a reflection of their God, a reflection of their morality, a reflection of their values. And so when our government, just a few months ago, committed to spend $100 million to advance and propagate lesbianism and sodomy and gender dysphoria and all other kinds of sexual immorality. And of course, their, their plan is 2SLGBTQI+, to promote equality and equity. And the United States government 
has pledged to spend $2.6 billion around the world to promote gender equity. And a lot of money was spent in Afghanistan over the last number of years, not on weapons, but on trying to impose on them this, this worldview of gender confusion. Because the magistrate will always promote religion. The magistrate will always, in their laws and in their actions, they're always going to seek to advance their own kingdom and their own ideas. There is no neutrality. And what we have is we have Christians who say, well, we can't involve Christ in the magistrate, and so we must hold back, but, but no one told the enemy that. And Antichrist will, will take a hold of the reins of the government and it will seek to use the sword, seek to use money and all the means and the power that the magistrate has to advance the kingdom of darkness and to bring the war to the church. There is no neutrality. Think about the laws of conversion therapy that were recently passed. In case you didn't think our government was religious, the preamble to that bill said that the Bible's teaching on manhood and womanhood, marriage and sexuality are harmful myths. Harmful myths and stereotypes that are not in the interest of the public good. Haven't we heard that before? Well, because we have a public good here, now we need to enforce this. It's come, I'm just waiting. I'm not sure which one of us are gonna go to jail over conversion therapy. Whichever it is, we have many people praying for you. <laughs> the magistrate promotes religion. It is a kingdom of light or it's a kingdom of darkness. Neutrality is a myth. It is Christ or antichrist. The second objection you might be thinking of, if the magistrate is involved, is a religious entity involved in this war, then what about religious liberty? I thought we live in a country that values religious liberty. And so how can a magistrate take a side and say, Christ is Lord? Haven't we learned that it is much better to have a a pluralistic society? That's why you think about the kind of liberty that you're thinking of. Do you want to live in a society where people have the liberty to kill their baby if they wish? The liberty to, to mutilate or chemically castrate children because they are not made in their self-perception or image? Is that the kind of liberty you want? What the Bible says is that the, the liberty to sin is actually bondage. And so if we live in a society where the government is to be the protector of peace and tranquility and they allow institutions and idolatries and lies and blasphemies which enslave the people, well, that's not a good government. That's an antichrist government. Religious liberty historically was liberty among different denominations and stripes of Christians. Those who recognize that under the lordship of Christ, there are issues that we can agree to disagree on and we should not have a, a portion over here that's just for the Baptists and just for the Presbyterians or just for the Congregationalists, but there's liberty in Christ. 
but not a liberty for all forms of idolatry and wickedness. That's not liberty, that's bondage. James 1.25 says that the law of God is the law of liberty. But perhaps the biggest objection to the magistrate having a role to play in a war against Antichrist is this idea of uh, forced conversion. What people will hear me say is that you believe that the government should, with the power of the sword, force people to be Christians. Now, I don't know anybody who's ever said that or argued for that. And certainly a godly magistrate would never force someone to be a Christian. You recognize he can't. You cannot force Christianity upon anyone. A Christian magistrate is for a Christian people. We've already talked about this weekend how it's a bottom-up as the people are changed and transformed through the power of the gospel through regeneration that they will demand godly leadership. And if we have objection to a godly magistrate, I want you to think whether that objection would work in your home. Do we want a home where the father of that home says, I don't want to force my children to be Christians. So in this home, we are going to have liberty and we'll teach them Islam and Mormonism and Christianity and we'll teach them transgenderism and evolution and, and we'll just, we'll lay it all out. We'll lay all the different face of our society before them because I don't want to force my faith upon my children. You recognize that kind of father is a wicked father, not leading his kids to truth. No godly father will be able to force the conversion of their children, but they will pray for them and they will guard their children and guard their household from lies and blasphemies and, and other forms of superstition and idolatries such that their children grow up hearing the gospel, hearing the law of God. Don't we want that for our homes? Don't you want that for your fathers in your churches? Then why would we not want that for the people in our society today? Why would we want that for our homes but not want it for anybody else in our society? Oh, leave them to their idolatries and superstitions. Is that how we're gonna love our neighbor? Or do we want to realize that when you have a Christian consensus, a godly magistrate, you have their a fertile field for the advancement of the gospel. Just try going to plant a church in Saudi Arabia compared to somewhere around here in the GTA. You recognize that it's not like, you can't compare those two things. Because here there has been a Christian witness unlike what has happened in Saudi Arabia. That's what we want in our Christian home. We want, a, we want a Christian witness. We want to cultivate that soil. We can't force any of our children to be converted, but we want to re refrain them and, and keep them and to guard them from all these lies and errors so we might point them to the light of Christ. Would not a godly magistrate want the same for his subjects? So these are the biggest objections to the magistrate having anything to do with religion. But I know for, for you all, we could talk about those objections and we can talk about historic confessions. I know many of you are probably 
You're like Luther when people came to him and said, well, this, this Pope said this and this council said this. And Luther said, scripture, scripture, scripture. Do you hear me? Scripture. And so let's turn to the scriptures. Take your Bible and turn to Romans 13. <laughs> and for those who are wondering, yes, it's in my Bible. One night in family worship, we were reading through the book of Romans sequentially, and we got to the 13th chapter, and one of my daughters said, Dad, I thought Romans only had 12 chapters. <laughs> thought that was funny. <laughs> now, there's a 13th chapter. Now, as we open Romans 13, I want to remind you of my argument. Here's my argument. Number one, the chief duty of the magistrate is to secure and preserve peace and public tranquility. And secondly, the magistrate will never do this more successfully than when he is truly God-fearing and religious. That is, according to the example of the most holy kings and princes of the people of the Lord, he promotes the preaching of the truth, sincere faith, roots out lies and all superstition, together with all impiety and idolatry, and defends the church of God. The question is, where do you see that in Scripture? Now, I could go to the Old Testament and say, wow, look at these passages, but then I might be accused of importing from the Old into a new in a way that, that breaks that discontinuity. So we're going to stick in the New Testament. And the first passage we're going to look at is Romans 13. Look there with me. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We have a clear command in Romans 13.1 and in verse 5. Be in submission to the governing authorities. The first verse and the fifth verse both containing that command, find between them a justification for why we ought to obey that command in verse number one and verse number five. Look again at the first verse. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And then it says this, for. Here is an explanation. For there is no authority except from God. And he continues. And then look also down at verse number five. After giving the justification, he says in verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection. Okay, so, so be in subjection for, and here's some reasons, and then after giving those reasons, therefore, be in subjection. So what comes after the first phrase in verse number 1 and before that therefore in verse number 5 is so important for us to understand because it teaches us about the role of the magistrate and how that relates to then our obedience and honoring of that magistrate. 
There's two important truths between verse 1 and verse 5 that I want to highlight. The first is that magistrates have been instituted by God and they're necessary and good according to his divine appointment. Look at the first verse again. He says, for there is, this is right in the middle there, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. The magistrate has been instituted by God and the magistrate is necessary and good according to God's divine appointment and plan. Government is not a necessary evil. It's a necessary good in the plan of God. It's the first thing we see. The second thing we see in verse three and four is that the magistrate, the powers that be are appointed by God to punish evil and approve the righteous. Look at verses three and four. Four, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Firstly, magistrates instituted by God, a necessary good. Secondly, the magistrate is there to approve the righteous and to take the sword to punish the wicked, to be an instrument of God's wrath. And it's in these verses that I think you can see that the first premise is easily established. That the magistrate is there such that peace and public tranquility is preserved. In fact, as you read through the end of Romans chapter 12, it talks about living at peace with everyone and, and don't take vengeance because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And then we have the beginning of chapter 13 and how is the Lord going to repay? Well, yes, there's a final judgment, but there is also immediate judgment and that immediate judgment comes through the instrumentality of the magistrates who is God's servant to carry out his wrath such that we have peace and tranquility. He approves the righteous and we can live a quiet and peaceful life because the magistrate punishes the evildoer. There was a point in our country where you could live in a city here and you could send your kids to the park and they'd be fine. You can't do that anymore. Why? Because law and order has been lost. It's not safe anymore. The magistrate's duty is to ensure peace and public tranquility by punishing the wicked and thereby approving the righteous. That's the first premise established in Romans 13. Now, the second premise of my argument is that the magistrate will never do this more successfully than when he is God-fearing and religious. And where do I see that? Well, look at verse number four. Four, the magistrate is God's servant for your good. The magistrate is God's servant, literally diakonos, God's deacon. For the magistrate to punish the evildoer 
and thereby approve the righteous. He will never do this more successfully than when he is God-fearing and religious because that man, that power, that authority knows what is good and what is evil. We have men with us today who are punished for doing what is good. That's not what Romans 13 is saying. The magistrate of Romans 13 punished the wicked, thereby approving the good. And when a man is God-fearing and religious, he will know his right hand from his left. He will know male from female. He will know righteous from unrighteous. And he is here said to be God's deacon. This reminds me of the parable of the 10 minas in Luke 19. Remember how Jesus describes this king who's going to faraway land and he, he gives to his servants this mina, it's money. And they are to use that and be a good steward of that to, to increase the wealth of his kingdom. And you know how there's that one servant who takes that one mina that he gets from the king and wraps it up in a handkerchief and just hangs onto it. And the king comes back and calls him a wicked servant and takes that coin from him and gives it to the one who had 10. There will be magistrates on that day of judgment who will be wicked servants because they are God's servants, God's deacons. And they have not exercised their duty in acknowledgement to the King, Jesus Christ. But we often miss in that parable, in that story that Jesus told to illustrate, is that not only did he have servants who, who did not serve him faithfully and therefore were rebuked, but there were some who did not want the king to rule over them. And when Jesus returned, he said this, not only did he take that one minor from that one man and give it to the one with 10, but he says, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter, me, slaughter them before me. Luke 19, 27. There will be magistrates on that day of judgment who are servants of the Most High God in their office as a magistrate. And their rule was one not only when they squandered what God had given to them, but they said, I don't want this king to rule over me. And they'll be brought before the Lord Jesus Christ and slaughtered before him. Why? because they ought to be Christ's servants, Christ's deacons. And so they'll never be successful, more successful than we're truly God-fearing and religious. So we see in Romans 13 that a faithful magistrate will be one who is a, a true and obedient servant of God, who acknowledges his law, his lordship, his rule, who fears God and is a religious man. Now, the second part of my second premise talks about not only will he be God-fearing and religious, but he will promote the preaching of the truth and sincere faith and root out lies and all superstition together with all impiety and idolatry and defend the church of God. And where do you find that in Romans 13? It's that part that seems... Mm, you're getting on some thin ice. 
For that, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter two. We're going here to see the Bible in fact teaches that the magistrate's role and responsibility includes to promote the preaching of the truth and sincere faith to root out lies and superstition together with all impiety and idolatry and defend the church of God. First Timothy chapter two, look with me in the very first verse. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth." Now, what do we see in this command about the magistrate, about kings and people in high positions? Well, obviously, we have the command to pray. But why are we praying for kings and people in high positions? Do you notice the so that? That's in verse number two. He says, pray for kings and all who are in high positions so that we, and who's the we? Not just Paul, me, and the apostles, but he's writing to the church, to Christians, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, Paul says, pray for the king and pray for those in places of authority so that we may live godly Christian lives. And how is that going to happen? Well, it seems apparent here that Paul's instruction to pray for the magistrate is to pray for his conversion. And so he says, pray for all people and for kings and people in high places. He talks about how there is one mediator between God and men. Why would he say that? Because there's not a salvation for the Jews or for the Gentiles or for kings or for the poor. There's one savior, the king, the emperor, and those magistrates, they need Christ. And so pray for their salvation. Pray that they might know Christ, and then in knowing Christ, in fearing Christ, in honoring Christ, we might live a peaceful, quiet, and godly life. Why? Because his Christianity and his, the Spirit of God in his life will impact how he rules. And it'll be good for the church. I want you to turn back to... 1 Timothy chapter 1, we have the context. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse number 8. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. 
for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the context to which Paul writes at the beginning of the second chapter, first of all, a matter of first importance, pray for kings. And what's the connection? Why are those two things found in the same letter in the same context? Who is it that wields the sword to lay down the law and to punish evildoers? It's the king, it's the magistrate. And Paul has just said the law is laid down, it is enforced, it is enacted, not for those who are the righteous, but for lawbreakers, for the evil, wicked, immoral, sensual. It it is those that the law is laid down, and he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine according to the gospel that I preach. Isn't that incredible? Here is the law that the magistrate ought to enact and to enforce to wield this sword as a servant of God, and Paul calls this law in accordance with the gospel that I preach to you. Whatever is contrary to that gospel ought to be put down. The law is laid down for those who would overturn and pervert and twist and distort and wage war against Christ and his gospel. What we hear today is, well, the law of God is, can, can never be for those who, who are sinful. The law of God is only for, for Christians who are born again. And maybe even hear that in, in parenting. Oh, I can't tell my kids what to do until they become Christians. What do you do with 1 Timothy? What do you do with this use of the law? Yes, there is a use of the law that that leads us to Christ, that reveals our sin to us, that that schoolmaster that points us to Christ. We see the law of God. We say, wretched man that I am, behold the wondrous Savior. And there's that use of the law that as a Christian, we recognize that the law is good and it's a delight and it's, it's sweet like honey because it is our path that leads us and guides us and shows us how we ought to live. It's a reflection of God's own character and we wanna be like him. And then there's that use of the law that restrains evil, that the magistrate ought to take up the sword to enforce and to enact. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And it's in accordance with the gospel. This is not contra-gospel. This is not anti-gospel. This is with the gospel, in light of the gospel. And so what we can see here in Scripture is that the chief duty of the magistrate is to secure and preserve peace and public tranquility. And secondly, the magistrate will never do this more successfully than when he is truly God-fearing and religious and that he follows the example of the most holy kings and princes of the people of the Lord 
He promotes the preaching of the truth and sincere faith. He roots out lies and all superstition together with all impiety and idolatry and defends the church of God. And as you read the Old Testament, you will see this established. You will see godly magistrates like Moses, Josiah, Hezekiah, that God used. When you look at the Reformation, you will see Edward VI. I mentioned Gustavus Adolphus, Prince Frederick who saved Luther, Philip of Hesse, who was so instrumental in the Reformation, the German Reformation. We've learned about William of Orange and the Glorious Revolution. God has used godly magistrates to wage war against Antichrist, to defend the church, to promote the truth. Think about in Paul's day. Who delivered Paul from prison in Philippi? Who delivered him from the mob in Crete? Who rescued him in Corinth? Who rescued his disciples in Ephesus at the theater? Who rescued him in the temple grounds on Jerusalem? In all those places, Paul was rescued by the magistrate. And that's why Peter says, obey the magistrates. Why? Because they are protecting you from the wickedness of the Jews and of the mob who would seek to destroy you and the advancement of the gospel. And God can even use ungodly men like those Roman emperors, like those town clerks, like those governors to advance his kingdom. God can use ungodly men like Cyrus, whom God calls my anointed to rescue his people. God certainly uses magistrates to accomplish his purposes, to be his servants, agents of wrath and the promoter of the gospel. Now, all of this truth comes to its foundation, its core, that we cannot neglect because all of this reality of the role of the magistrate, it's like the role of the father, it's like the role of the pastor in the church, all of these make sense only if we understand the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ over all his creation. If we begin to think that somehow the state is then over the church, or somehow that would make the church then over the state, we've, we've got it wrong. We're, we're neglecting that the reason why we would have a godly magistrate wage war against Antichrist is not because he's being ruled by the church or ruling over the church, but because he's ruling under the lordship of Christ. It's because Christ is king and there is no neutrality. And consistent with that profession that Jesus Christ is Lord, the magistrate rules as a Christian. And he defends the truth and a sincere faith. The confession Jesus Christ is Lord will have ramifications not only in your church, in your home, but in politics, in art, in music, in all of society. When you say Jesus Christ is Lord, the kings and the emperors of the earth begin to shudder. They know what that means. If Jesus Christ is Lord and the king of all kings, well, then I'm subservient to Christ. And you're like, yeah, that's exactly what it means. No wonder places like communist China don't want a true, vibrant Christianity. 
because they know that profession that Jesus Christ is Lord means the end of their tyranny. Because the gospel of the kingdom of God, the profession that Jesus Christ is Lord is not primarily a political statement or movement, but has earth-shattering political implications. And this is why it's been so important these last two years to know that Jesus Christ is Lord, that secularism has failed, that there is no such thing as neutrality, that there's no such thing as a, as a law that just kind of floats out over here that is disconnected with God and his revelation. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, if you consider these truths, none of you here are a prime minister <laughs> or, or wield the sword as a king. And so how ought you to take this truth and apply it to your lives? And that's what I wanna do now. What does this mean for the church? Does this mean we're out of a job? We just gotta get the right magistrate in and like, boom, there you go, reformation. What does it mean for us to have this truth in our minds of a righteous, godly magistrate being used to wage war, not against the soul of Antichrist, but against his body? So what should we do? Four things I wanna leave with you. First is this, we must pray. Because of the role of the magistrate as articulated in the Bible, we must pray. So Paul says in 1 Timothy, talks about the law of God, it's laid down for the, for the wicked. First of all then, pray. Pray for kings and those in positions of authority. Pray for their conversion. Pray that they might rule in a way that is honoring to God. Pray they would rule in such a way that they would take what has been entrusted to them by King Jesus and rule to please him as a faithful servant. Pray that their heart might be changed and transformed, that they might be God-fearing and religious. Pray. Think about the people of Israel when they were in exile in Egypt. And they prayed and they cried to the Lord. And the Lord heard their cry by raising up Moses, a godly magistrate, to lead them out. Think about the people in the time of the judges, how they would be enslaved by tyrants. And they'd weep and they'd cry out to the Lord and he'd hear their cry and he'd send to them a deliverer, a ruler. Think about in the time of David, he himself was an answer to prayer. And as he was being attacked, how he would come before the Lord and pray and ask for God's deliverance and the Lord would deliver him. And this reminds us that not only do we need to pray for those who are in high positions, but we need to recover the same prayers that our forefathers in the faith would pray. We need to be well acquainted with the Psalms. You know, when you're in a jail cell, most of the hymns we sing just didn't seem to fit. But the Psalms, 
they became so precious. We as a church need to recover singing and praying the Psalms. To ask for God's judgment, his vengeance, his holiness. Prayers of imprecation. Prayers of lament. Cries for deliverance. Prayers of repentance and confession. That's what we need today. Is God calling you to be a, an instrument of prayer? To start a spark among, among your church, among your network, to call people to pray? Will God use us like he's used men like John Knox? You probably know John Knox's prayer. Lord, give me Scotland or I die. <laughs> and as that man of small stature, the big beard, when he prayed, the queen says, I'm more afraid of the prayers of John Knox than of any army. And what about us in our day? Could we envision a time when the premier or the prime minister or the local mayor hears that we are gathering to pray and is struck with fear? When our churches are gathered for a prayer meeting, we're just coming to pray and the parking lot is full and the doors are bursting and, and the people have gathered and they're going to cry out to the Lord. And they're going to pray and tarry in prayer and pray till they pray. And they will be in agony and they will be in tears and then weeping and they'll be crying out to their God, Lord, deliver us. Will we be like William Tyndale as he is at the stake, at the place of execution? And when he cries out, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And two years later, his prayers were answered. And his Bible was published all across England, and it changed that society. We'd be like John Bunyan in his jail cell, praying for the Lord's deliverance, unwilling to compromise with Antichrist. And almost immediately after his death, God raises up a godly magistrate, William of Orange, and brings in the glorious revolution. Will that be our story? Or will we stumble and be disobedient and unbelieving and prayerless? Will you pray? Will you cry out to God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ and his gospel is powerful? And that if we get on our knees, repent of our sins and call out to the Lord in prayer that he can and he will answer. That's the first application for us to pray. Secondly, the church has a role to be a prophetic voice. What I mean by this is not any kind of funny business like you're getting some kind of 
revelation from God that is outside of the word of scripture. We need need a fresh word today. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the same kind of prophecy of those Old Testament prophets who would go to the king and say, King, thus saith the Lord. And he would call him back to the covenant and call him to obedience. He'd point him to God and call him to repentance. The role of the church today as the pillar and the support of the truth entrusted with the word of God is to take this word and to deliver it to kings and those who are in places of authority. To not feel like, well, he's not really gonna believe the Bible, so let's just close this and we'll come to him with some other kind of rational argument and and try to establish some report to him. The prophets of old were hated. We're gonna be hated. They were thought of as, as weird and eccentric. We'll be thought of as weird and eccentric. But God uses his word. And he uses his people as a mouthpiece to tell his word and to call sinners to repentance. John the Baptist was called the chief among the prophets. And you know that John the Baptist got himself into trouble a few times. And John the Baptist ended up losing his head. And why? Like, why couldn't John the Baptist simply just stick with the gospel Why did he have to poke Herod? Come on, Herod didn't even profess to fear God. He was an unbeliever. Didn't anyone tell John the Baptist the word of God does not apply to the unbeliever? Why is John the Baptist not only drudging up his adulterous affair and marriage, but in Luke 3.19 it says that John also rebuked him for all the evil things that Herod had done. John was a frequent critic of Herod. Remember that Herod had the authority not only to throw him in jail, but to cut off his head. And he felt his duty as the prophet is to prepare the way of the coming of the Lord. And don't we have that same responsibility today to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord? He is coming back. Are we going to warn those around us that there is a day of judgment? Repent of your sin and believe upon the coming Christ? That's what John did. He's a great prophet. So we must pray and we must be a prophetic voice. Now let me say that this instruction to be a truth teller, to tell God's word, lies especially at the feet of those of you who are pastors. And this is a call for you who are not pastors to pray for your pastor that they would be bold and courageous in sharing the truth of God's word. And not just tiptoeing around the issues that are safe, but in declaring the entire counsel of God to wage war with the word of God right there where the battle is hottest. That's where your faithfulness is tested. So pray for your pastors because two things happen. Two things are a temptation 
of a, a prophet, a preacher of God's word. One temptation is to want the world to like you and the applause of men. And so rather than being a true prophet of Christ, we come, become a prophet of the Antichrist. And rather than saying the truth of God, we just take the, the message of that ungodly king, that ungodly beast, and we become a mouthpiece for evil. And how many pastors have simply been a mouthpiece for the narrative? By taking exactly what the world says and then you just, you baptize it. You put some Christian jargon on it. We say, love your neighbor. So the Bible says, but we mean by that, we've gutted that out and we put in there the ideology of the world. And the poor people in our churches, they don't know the difference if they haven't been trained and, ta and taught. The Bible warns about lying prophets and a flattering tongue. And the Bible also warns of those who not only will be mouthpieces for the evil one, but those who will be silent when their voice is required. That's the other temptation of a prophet of God to think, hey, this is too costly. This is too much. And so I'm just going to be quiet. And there is a time when we're trying to figure things out. But pastors, shouldn't take you months, years to find out what the Bible says about this and speak God's word to those that are around you, including those who are in high places. And so we're called to proclaim the word of God and to do so even if it comes at the cost of our heads because then we will receive the martyr's crown. And so pray for your pastors, pray for the fathers, pray for those who have influence, those who, who speak the word of God, who disciple others. Lay the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done before your hearers. Lay before them the law of God. Warn the magistrate about the terrors of the Lord and call him to the grace and the kindness and the compassion of our Lord. Put the truth constantly before them with no thought to yourself. You're a mouthpiece, you're an instrument. The church must be that prophetic voice. Thirdly, the church must disciple the next generation. Jesus Christ, saying that he had all authority, calls us to go and to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them and to teach them to observe all that he has commanded us. That's our task as a church. It's not easy. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be costly. Not all of us will survive. But Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm with you always. We ought to be great commission-minded. We have to get out of our head that the, the next election is gonna fix everything. You know? I, I Personally, I, I hate that few months before an election. And, and when, when all the voices come to me, like this is the most important thing right now. Do or die. It is important to be involved 
in voting and politics. But don't confuse that with our Great Commission. We have to play the long game. We have to think of not only the next four years, the next 10 years, the next 20 years, the next 30 years. What are you building now, not only for your own children, but for your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren? Are you seeking to retreat for your own safety and thereby abandon your children and great-grandchildren? You guys manage that on your own. I'm out of here. Or will you navigate the times and the seasons by sending before your children the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, sitting down them daily in family worship, coming before them in prayer? Will you make disciples in your own home? Will you seek to be salt and light in your network and area of influence for the sake of Christ, laboring and persisting, knowing that fruit might not immediately appear after five seconds, like we expect sometimes? Persevere. Winston Churchill famously said that they will fight the Nazis on the beaches, in the air, at the sea, in the fields. And so too, as the church, as Christians, we must fight Antichrist by making disciples in our home, in the church, in the society, through art, through music through politics, through institutions, through education. We are to be laboring in those areas for the sake of Christ to make disciples and to teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And it's my prayer that what we see because of that work of gospel proclamation and the, the consequent teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded them would result of what, what happened in Acts 17 when it says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And may our work of making disciples have that kind of effect, where the world is being turned upside down. Because we're proclaiming the gospel how you might be justified through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, your repentance and faith, and then teaching those ones who have been saved to live in all facets of their life as a Christian. That's our task. And lastly, number four. We must have hope. We must have hope. Our society, for in large measure, is ruled by fear. And that same kind of fear can get its way into the church. One side's afraid of a virus. The other side's afraid of the government. But they're all afraid. <laughs> but for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, there's hope. Great hope. When Jesus Christ made purification for sin, it says in Hebrews 1, he rose again and then he is now seated at the right hand of the Most High God. And he is waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. He has been exalted as the Son of God, exalted as Lord of Lords and King of all kings. We must recognize this reality because our hope is not in politics, 
Our hope is not in a, a godly magistrates and chariots and horses. Our hope is not in our success in the Great Commission. Our hope is not in more godly pastors and faithful men. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, he rules and reigns. And when it says in Revelation 1.5 that he is the ruler of the kings on earth, that has consequence in the here and now. Because he is Lord of all and King of all, we have confidence and hope that the Antichrist will be ruined. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said the king is like a stream of water in his hand. He can turn his heart wherever he wills. So why are we afraid? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and I'm with you. We should have hope. Jesus said to his disciples after he gave them authority, he said, I saw Satan fall down from heaven like lightning. He said, I have bound the strong man, now go and plunder his kingdom. And so we wage war against both the soul and the magistrate against the body of Antichrist with great hope because Jesus Christ is more than a conqueror. He is the king of all kings and he is the Lord of all lords. And so when we think about the great hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, this all the more causes us to pray, causes us to speak that word of God, causes us to make disciples and to nurture our children and to speak the gospel into the world because Jesus Christ is king and he is worthy and he will receive the reward for his suffering. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for Christ, the all-glorious one. I thank you for his shed blood. I thank you for his resurrection. I thank you he accomplished victory through suffering and now promises us that same kind of suffering through which victory will come. Oh, God, help us to persevere. Make us a praying people, a truth-telling people. Oh, God, help us to make disciples. And above all, let us hope. And let us hope in our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.